Perceptions Podcast. So much of our anxiety comes from this question, have I lived the right life? If not, should I have lived another one? Is there still yet time to do that? Imagine a DeLorean time machine car appears outside your house this year and you get in and you're told that you're going to 2052 to see what the future looks like. You arrive and you see what it actually looks like 30 years from now. Do you want that future? What would you do to get there or to get away from that future? That's what we're going to find out. So how about this? There's been a lot of death in the news these past few weeks, an awful lot of death. So much so that it feels churlish to single out one death, one death that made the front pages of the paper and resulted in hundreds of column inches of virtual print, a lot of analysis, self-analysis even. But let's talk about a specific death, the death of a friend. Of course, I'm talking about the death of Matthew Perry, the comedic star of the cultural icon of a TV series, Friends. Now, maybe you're my age, remember those days when it first came out? Or perhaps you don't. The dark days before streaming services, in which if you wanted to watch your favourite show, you had to, you know, turn up and tune in each week. A watch party, perhaps, with snacks. And a blocked out evening in the diary. There were episodes, story arcs, and shows such as Friends that just demanded you all getting together to watch it. And the theme song of Friends? Of course that theme song, I'll Be There For You, by the Rembrandts, who, if you weren't the mum of a Rembrandt member, had no other song that you can remember at all. But now it's stuck in your head, I'll Be There For You. A perfect song, perfectly encapsulating the show. Because that's what Friends are for, right? To be there for each other. And the show demonstrated exactly that, how six friends, a balanced set of male and female with nary a non-binary in sight, were there for each other, all of the time. Whatever else they did in New York, it clearly wasn't working too hard. They were always just there for each other. Whether in an impossibly large New York apartment or Central Perk Cafe, whoever came up with that name deserves a double-shot almond milk latte with a little cookie on the side. Now, I read recently about how Friends was the millennial show. Well, perhaps. But the age cohort it reflects is mine, the X-generation crowd, who are all ageing quicker than we had anticipated, who look up suddenly and realise that the oldest of us are headed towards 60. And suddenly, a friend has died. Matthew Perry's long-term struggles with health and addictions, his very public struggles, have ended after a probable heart attack and definite drowning in his hot tub. Age, 54. And we're shocked, because wasn't Perry, or Chandler as we had come to know him, just in his late 20s a few years ago? Weren't we just in our late 20s a few years ago? What happened? Well, here's what happened. We put our heads down, sorted out a few kids, struggled in a job or a marriage or a failed marriage, and 
Suddenly we look up and 2005 is nearly two decades ago. We look at the pictures of Perry, the young pictures, and we go, how did he get so old? Health problems, addictions? Then we catch a glimpse of ourselves in the fitting room mirror or a shop window and we go, how did I get so old? I remember my own wedding day. My father-in-law's speech was excellent. Such a mature older man, aged 54. Yet here I am, two years older than he was that day. How did that happen? I go to a party. A 50th birthday party of a friend and it's full of 50-somethings wearing the scars of life. A recent widower. A few friends alone about to be divorced. I'll be there for you until I'm not. Until I leave. Or until death takes me away. We devote column inches to Matthew Perry partly because he mirrored something about us when we were younger, our aspirations, our hopes and dreams. And as he aged, he mirrored our fears and worries and perhaps our own failures. We take the death of a friend seriously, even in the midst of a terrible time of turmoil, in the midst of thousands of deaths, not simply because of his death, but because what it represents in us. So where's it all going? It's all going towards the block. We're headed towards the block. In his latest book on getting out of bed, the burden and gift of living, American theologian and cultural critic Alan O. Noble quotes the T.S. Eliot poem, Little Gidding. Eliot writes, any action is a step to the block. What block? Well, Noble goes on to explain the slow, steady, inexorable walk towards the chopping block, the condemned man walking towards the block, death. Any action, any inaction, for our inaction says noble our actions themselves, every action is a step to the block. Noble's book is an exploration of depression and anxiety and the resistance we have all felt at one point or another to getting out of bed even as the block looms. His contention? It's worth getting out of bed. It's an action in and of itself. But he reminds us, torturously so, that even an action that declares I'm living, I'm not being defeated by this, is a step to the block. We swing our legs over the edge of the bed, pull on our pants, take a deep breath, stand up straight, and take a step. Step to the block. Noble's contention is that much of our cultural anxiety in the modern West is caught in the tension of limited time, yet seemingly unlimited options. He says this, Sometimes the risks of life overwhelm us and we avoid making a decision. This is especially true in a society like ours, which gives us more and more options. If we can't know who to marry or what to do with our lives, or which brand of clothing is the most ethically manufactured, maybe we can't do anything at all. He goes on. Eventually, we fold in on ourselves, unable to commit, or only committing to things half-heartedly, exhausted by our own sense of inadequacy. This is despair. 
we will still move toward the block, but will be dragged there against our will. Now, Noble makes the point that for all the illusion of wide choice in our modern society, we have to narrow them down, and that's exhausting. And it's fair to say that Matthew Perry was overwhelmed. Comedic acting came easy to him. Getting out of bed? Not so much. Though not from want of trying. Here's a prayer he said that he prayed before the friend's phenomenon. Please God, make me famous. You can do anything you want to me. Just make me famous. And then he says, three weeks later I got friends. And God did not forget about the second part. There's a verse in the Old Testament poetry book, the Psalms, about the Israelites in the desert who bargained with God, in this instance, for food in the desert. Yet the cost? It tells us that God gave them what they wanted, but he brought leanness to their souls. Well-fed bodies, starving hearts, and Perry found to his cost that his trade-off brought some leanness to his soul too. But enough about life, let's get back to death. Sometimes I don't get out of bed, not often, but sometimes. And sometimes my wife, Jill, and I just lie in bed for a few hours on a rare, quiet weekend, holding each other, feeling the steady rise of our relaxed breathing. And we talk about the grief of losing our best friend, each other, about how we have less time ahead of us than behind us, and the anticipatory pain of that. And my wife's leading into menopause this past year has been a stark reminder of this. Of course, we weren't having more kids, but somehow now that's a choice taken out of our hands, a milestone, a millstone, as we continue our own personal step to the block. Yet here's the thing, that's given us a sense of urgency we had not anticipated. Our bodies have aged, and we're not the young friends with the er uh, central perk that we had in our youth. Yet lying there, with the sun streaming through the gaps in the curtains, we cling to each other more meaningfully and more often in the knowledge that the block is that much closer. Even sex is a step to the block. The French don't call it petit mort, little death, for no reason. <laughs> in his song Soul Love, the now also dead David Bowie sings of two recurring themes, war and love and how death, the block, looms over them all. Listen to the lyrics at the start, they're great. Stone love, she kneels before the grave, a brave son who gave his life to save the slogans that hover between the headstone and her eyes, for they penetrate her grieving. New love, a boy and girl are talking new words that only they can share in new words. A love so strong, it tears their hearts to sleep through the fleeting hours of morning. Ah, oh, those pesky fleeting hours of morning. The mornings of our lives that turn so quickly to afternoons, and then before we know it, to evenings. Fleeting indeed. Life how short, eternity how long. And in a society such as ours in the West, in which this is all there is, this idea can lead to all sorts of decisions, this fleetingness. Disastrous decisions, risky decisions, noble decisions, adulterous decisions. But every one of them, a decision nonetheless, that is a step to the block. And so much of our anxiety comes from this question. Have I lived the right life? If not, 
should I have lived another one? Is there still yet time to do that? In his classic, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker's study of the secular West's inability to grapple with mortality in meaningful ways, Becker says this, Guilt results from unused life, from the unlived in us. Man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness and that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty and yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order blindly and dumbly to rot and disappear forever. Unused life. What a stab to the heart that is. So much to do, so little time to make our mark, yet we sit and doom scroll nonetheless. One day, you will go back into the ground a few feet, well, six feet or so. I've done enough funerals, stood by enough gravesides, to see how deep six feet looks. And do you know how deep it looks? It looks as deep as an abyss when they lower that coffin in. That's usually when people start to wail. The reality of the rot sets in. You can only deny death for so long. Yet the Western world is known to do that. Which is something of an irony. Because, as is being noted across the Western world at the moment, this denial is accompanied by a huge growth in the assisted suicide industry. And not just for palliative care. It seems the more progressive a government, the more readily it is to offer death to us. And not only to us seeking to hasten its imminent inevitability, but to those of us who would otherwise have years left to live without some sort of state intervention. Turns out, if you can't step to the block quickly enough, we can bring the block to you. The stats make for interesting and disturbing reading. So in Canada, for example, that most progressive of nations, where the assisted suicide legislation is some of the most liberal in the world, if liberal is indeed a philosophical idea that can even be attached to assisted suicide, it seems that the younger the cohort, the more widely they are willing to cast the net of death. As reported in the Unheard Online Journal, euthanasia now accounts for 4.1% of all Canadian deaths. And 60% of 18 to 34 year old Canadians approve of assisted suicide for those with a non-life-threatening disability. And 55% of that same cohort said that euthanasia should be offered to those who are mentally ill. What a great irony that on the one hand we spend millions trying to solve mental health and the anxiety scourge affecting our Western nations, but offer suicide as a way out, on the other hand. So where's it all going? Probably in the same direction, only more radical and much faster. Running to the block, so to speak, never mind stepping to it. Here we are in denial of death, but at the same time struggling in the West to find meaning and purpose and significance in life, and certainly having no way to make sense of suffering. Our expressive individualism, our commitment to this is all there is, is reducing us to nihilism. 
A denial of death on the surface that leads to hedonism or self-destruction, but which cannot deal with the angst lurking beneath. And there's also, I don't know if you've noticed, a growing interest in Stoicism, the Jordan Peterson-esque looking at suffering in the face, admitting it exists, but tidying up your room anyway. If everything is indeed a step to the block, then make sure it's as metered and mastered as possible. But what for those of us who are looking for something more? Not denying death, but not nihilistic or stoic. Perhaps this. Historian Tom Holland, who's not a religious man himself, commenting on the Canadian assisted suicide statistics, said this. Now this really is post-Christian. Here's what he meant. It was, is, the Christian story grounded in the message about Jesus Christ that shaped a culture of brutalizing death, the pagan world of the first century, into one that valued life, especially the lives of the weak, the infirm, the mentally ill, the slaves, the unborn, the women, the poor, the fill in the blank. Every life, dignity, value, and worth. And also because of Christianity, a meaning and purpose in the midst of suffering not simply in the rare absence of it. Now, Holland does not believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but he does believe that those who did believe it transformed the moral shape of their world through that belief. A defining feature of the Christian Western world, as it becomes less Christian in the coming decades, will be that death becomes a more palatable option despite its inherent horror. Theologian Stanley Haravas was asked what Christianity would become known for in the future. And he said this, I'd say in 100 years, if Christians are people identified as those who do not kill their children or their elderly, we would have been doing something right. I think, he says, in the name of compassion, we're living in a social order that will increasingly not know what to do with those born dying. 100 years, I'd give it 10. Here's the thing, we're all born dying. That's a central teaching of the Bible. We're all taking a step to the block from the moment we give our first whimper. And Christianity in our culture does not shy away from that reality. And ironically, from what I've seen, the most effective Christians, the ones who make the biggest difference while living, were often the ones most aware of their temporary status. Yet not in an Ernest Becker way. Guilt results from unused life, from the unlived in us, he said. But rather for those who look at their lives and use them up for the sake of other people or suffer for a noble cause, even if it feels they have not so-called lived in the modern Western way of thinking what it means to live a guilt-free life. You see, unlike Matthew Perry, they don't pray, do whatever you want with me, God, just make me famous. They pray this, do whatever you want with me, God, so that I may make your name famous. And so often, in a happy byproduct, they've become famed in the process. And they take that attitude from the one considered their truest friend, Jesus Christ. It was the death of that friend that enables us to 
not foolishly deny death, nor to embrace it nihilistically, but to step to the block in an entirely different way. Let me finish with this from Alan Noble. Any action we take gambles the limited time we have on Earth. We wager all other possible actions by choosing one. Whenever we choose a medical treatment, or a school for our kids, or a career path, we risk something being wrong. Failure, regret, time, poverty, and so on. It is precisely because our actions are wagers that they communicate something about us and our understanding of the world. When we act on that goodness, the goodness of knowing there is meaning in all things we do, we take that step to the block in radical defiance of suffering and our own anxiety and depression and hopelessness with our heads held high. We honour God and his creation and we testify to our family, to our neighbours and to our friends of his goodness. This act is worship. Or to put it another way, do whatever you want with me, God, so that I may make your name famous. And that's my prayer. But this episode is called The Death of a Friend, so in reality, it's a homage to a dear friend, Pauline, who took her final step to the block just two days ago. A last act of worship in a life with its fair share of sufferings, but a life which was lived knowing that the block is not the end of the story. Podcast.